0: To start my time together, I, I wanted to um, bring up a game called Tribon. Any of you familiar with that game? It's uh, this game where you have a card and you read a few, like three items, and then the the goal is to try to figure out what do those items, three items, have in common. Uh, for example, if I were to say uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Jonah, what's common about those three guys? They're all prophets. Very good. Uh, so let's try it out. Uh, What do Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, and Martin Lloyd Jones have in common? All great preachers, well known for preaching. They're all dead, that's true. One thing they held in common that uh, some of you may not know about, they all suffered from times of depression and despondency. They also suffered from uh, discouragement at times for different reasons. Luther suffered many bouts of what he called the dark night of the soul. And he had problems with his health, constant fear for his life. Conflict, struggles in the church, attacks from Satan, and often those brought on dark times. In fact, in one of these instances when he was struggling with depression, uh, he wrote a letter to uh, his friend Philip Melanchthon, and he said in that letter, "...completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God." Spurgeon, many of you know the struggles that he had with depression... Uh he had in fact early on in his ministry at the age of 22 he had opportunity to preach to huge crowds of over 10,000 people. Uh one of his first messages if not the first if I remember it that he preached at the music hall at Royal Surrey Gardens in 1856 again at the age of 22 they were all there overflow crowds and someone yelled out fire. And seven people were trampled to death many others were injured. And those close to Spurgeon, uh, he would tell. They would often talk to him about that. He he was plagued by that for many many years after it happened. Spurgeon too had problems with his, his health. He suffered from gout, rheumatism, inflammation of the kidneys. His wife, after about ten years of marriage, developed a debilitating condition. She became an invalid. She was unable to go to uh, hear his sermons. Uh, so he he had suffered a lot. He died at an early age of fifty-seven. He said at one point. Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. Might as well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, too, was burdened at times with the ministry, so much so that he would get discouraged and he would get depressed. And he saw this as such an issue that he preached 21 sermons on depression during one year of his ministry. And they're now contained in a book called Spiritual Depression. I would highly recommend uh, that you get that book. If these great men of faith who knew God, they knew their Bibles, they're very mature in the Lord, if these guys could struggle with depression and discouragement, none of us are immune to it either. This morning I wanted to spend a few moments talking about this because uh, I remember my first year of ministry here. I had more days of uh, discouragement and being down than any other year of my life. Things happened that I, I did not anticipate, which is a reminder to be praying for your elders, would you? Wayne Mack described depression as discouragement to the point of hopelessness. It isn't just difficult to keep going, but it feels like it is impossible to keep going. And I felt burdened to address this topic this morning because I know personally some of you are having some significant struggles in your life or have had. Some of you have watched a loved one die. Some of you may be going through chronic pain, many hospital visits, and don't seem to be finding any relief. Some of you may have a disability or you're caring for someone with a disability. Some of you may have been battling a sin and it's just not going away. It keeps coming back. You're struggling with that. Some of you perhaps have been betrayed by someone close to you. Some of you maybe have a marriage. There's a lot of struggles, wayward children. Maybe you've been out of work for a while. You know, these are all situations, and I could go through a whole list of many more that, that can bring us down, that can bring us to feel discouraged, that can make us wonder what's going on here. Any of these trials can be overwhelming. I remember a couple that I knew in high school. They had been high school sweethearts. They'd been dating from their freshman year. Uh, they'd been together all the time. Anytime you're on campus, you would see them together. And this couple, uh, their senior year, our senior year, uh, the, the girlfriend decided that she didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. And despite his numerous pleas, they broke off their relationship. She broke it off. And so one morning, she he shows up at her house uh, yelling to her on her front lawn, Because he had been battling depression for several weeks after they'd broken up. When she came out of the front door, he pulled out a gun and stuck it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. This was a guy I knew. Nobody realized how deep he had gone into discouragement. Depression is very real. Its consequences can be devastating. We need to talk about it. You need to know how to deal with it, not just to keep you from the bad feelings that come along with that discursion, not to keep you from the potential tragedy that depression might bring you. There's there's an even bigger reason that we need to talk about it this morning, that you need to know how to deal with that. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about why Christians need to know how to battle depression. He says, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. As we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christians and who name the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution, here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions and in spite of adversity. You see, there's there's more at stake here than just our own comfort or safety. The honor of Jesus Christ and the effectiveness of His gospel are on display through those who claim to know Him. Because a joyless Christian presents a powerless gospel. That's why this isn't important. The scriptures are filled with testimony after testimony of those who went through very discouraging and despairing times. In fact, David is one of those who encountered a lot of struggles in his life, who faced adversity and struggled with despair. And it's to him we're going to turn our attention this morning in Psalm 13, where we're going to see two responses to give you freedom from depression. Two responses that David gives to give you freedom from depression. And David was no small stranger to trials, was he? He went through many trials and difficulties in his life, many struggles He was often on the run from King Saul, fearing for his life. David's family was kidnapped in the town of Ziklad when he was on the run from Saul. Some marauding Amalekites came through and they kidnapped the entire family, all the families of the soldiers that were with him. And the soldiers that were with him were so distraught when they came back to the town that they were ready to kill him. They were picking up stones to stone him. I mean, imagine how you would feel. Guys, you show up one day, your family's gone, and you find out they've been taken. They've been kidnapped. David went through that. David lost an infant son. David had a daughter who was raped by his son. And that son was then murdered by another son of David. David struggled with the guilt and consequences of adultery and murder. One of David's sons, Absalom, staged a coup, took the throne from David, and then sought to kill him. David had gone through a lot. He knows and understands what it is like to suffer from many different angles. In Psalm 13, we find David in one of those trials. Let me read this passage. Follow me as I read it. For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But I I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord, use this time as we're together to... God, help us to see your truth, to understand it, to apply it. God, we thank you for David's testimony here and that you've included these words for us to hear. And I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to understand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we see here in this situation, this psalm, David is again on the run for his life, probably from Saul. He mentions a specific enemy, but doesn't name him. And just imagine, again, the trials of living under constant fear of not being able to stay in one place and call it your home, of having to drag your family all over the place, again, at risk of thieves and, and uh, dangers. Imagine uh, not realizing the fact that God had promised you would be king one day, and yet here you were, not, not in a home, not on a throne. And we can see in David's tone that these things had taken a toll on him. We can see in his tone He was struggling. He asked questions. How long will you forget about me, God? Forever? How long will you ignore me? How long will the only voice I hear be my own? How long will I suffer at the hands of my enemy? Can you hear the emotion in his words? How long, God? How long? The repetition here reveals the pain and agony that David is feeling in his heart. This wasn't some prayer that he was offering in a pew in a nice, comfortable church. It wasn't some prayer that he was giving on his bed or in his bedroom or closet, safe from all the dangers around him. No, he was probably sitting in a cave or out in the wilderness somewhere with guys on the lookout. This was a prayer offered in time of struggle, not in time of ease. And these weren't questions that David were asking to seek information. No, they're the cries from a despairing man. God, where are you? This doesn't make any sense to me. Why did you abandon me? Don't you care? I'm about to die. Other men of God have been in this place. Job said, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Moses told the Lord, I'm alone. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight. Elijah, remember, he was on the run from Queen Jezebel at one point in his life. She wanted to take him out. So he goes into the wilderness, sits under the tree, and this is what he tells God. It is enough, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my fathers. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. All these men were great saints of the Lord, and they struggled to the point where they felt like dying, even asking God, just take me, take me out. Paul himself, who went through a lot, said he despaired even of life. You ever been there? You ever felt like God was ignoring you? You ever felt like he brought situations in your life that you just don't understand? Why is God? I'm his child. Why is he continuing to have me go through this? This hurts, God. Aren't you listening? Can't you hear me? In trouble, you pray for relief, but all you hear back is silence. A silence so deafening that it drowns out every thought but this one. God isn't listening to me. Now the question isn't whether you're going to face these trials. Question isn't whether you're going to feel abandoned or not. No, that's likely going to happen. The question is, what are you going to do when those times come? How are you going to respond to them? How will you deal with them? Will you give in to those feelings and that discouragement and slide down the the funnel of despair, end up in the pit of depression? Well, David's own experience here shows us two ways to climb out of that pit. He gives us two responses that will give you freedom from depression and the first response is found in verses one to four and it has to do with the activity what david is doing right now those first first four verses he is talking to somebody he's not talking to his friends his fellow soldiers he's not talking to his family or even to his enemies who is he talking to here help me out who is he talking to the god that's right He's talking to the Lord. He's bearing his concerns before him. David teaches us that the first response to give you freedom from your struggles, your depression, your discouragement is pray to God. Yes, I know it sounds simple, but that is true. Prayer. Don't fret. Don't brood over your situation. Don't hold it in. Go to God and go to Him first. When people come to me and and they're struggling with something something they want to talk to me about, a lot of times I'll ask them, well, what have you said to the Lord about this? Because sometimes people say, um, well, nothing. Well, don't expect a human to be able to help you when God's the only one that can. And I'm not saying don't go to people, but go to God first. Go to Him first, even if you don't feel like He is there. Even if you don't feel like He's listening. Prayer should be our knee-jerk reaction to everything. Pray without ceasing, right? When young Daniel was brought news that He was going to be killed by the king because the king was unhappy. The wise men did not interpret his dream. So he said, well, forget all of them, kill them all. Daniel, what he does, he gathers his friends and they don't commiserate with one another. They don't try to figure out a plan to get out of it. What do they do? They go directly to the Lord and they, they say, it says in Daniel 2, he went to his house, informed his friends about the matter. So they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed. Hezekiah had the same strategy when he faced impending doom from the Assyrian army who had been going through the land wiping out every town. An army of 185,000 stood at the gates of Jerusalem just about ready to tear it apart. The king of Assyria was sending messengers and notes to Hezekiah saying surrender or die. And so what does Hezekiah do? Immediately, he takes that letter that was given to him. He runs to the temple of the Lord. He lays it out before God and says, Look at this, God. What are you going to do about it? We need you to help. Hezekiah went to him immediately. That was his first response. He didn't consult with his advisors. He didn't try to locate an ally that was going to bail him out. He went to God. And that's what David is doing here in this psalm. He knew that God was the only one. That could bring comfort and security and deliverance and even though god seemed far away david ran to him anyway this is the first step to freedom from despair run to god don't let your feelings stop you pour out your heart before him and even if your prayers seem like they're bouncing off of the ceiling what you need to do is pound that ceiling harder don't give in And David demonstrates here in his prayer two characteristics of prayer. He prayed honestly, and David prayed fervently. David asks some pretty direct questions of God, doesn't he? He begins with, how can you keep forgetting me, God? And he wasn't talking here about God's memory. No, this word here, forget, has the idea of of not neglecting, of showing care for. David said, you don't care about me anymore? David thinks God has hidden himself from him. He's not on the throne as God promised. He's running for his life. Obviously, God's not around anywhere if this is happening to me. David then asks the Lord how long he will be left to take counsel of his soul or literally to, to lay or put down counsel or advice in his own soul. And the picture here is like a, the soul is a storeroom and David is making these plans and thoughts trying to figure a way out and he keeps basically throwing them into the storehouse because they're useless, they're failing He's on and on, continually trying to figure how to get out of this. Day and night, he keeps thinking about it, but God continues to remain silent. David pleads, how long will his enemy have the upper hand? You know, the more he, as he thinks about these problems, the more depressed he gets. The walls are closing in on David. There's no relief. God is nowhere to be found. David is weary and in despair. One man said, a week within prison walls is longer than a month at liberty. that's how David felt. And though he feels the nearness of death, what does he do? He prays. Though he feels like God is not around, he still goes to him. And David's prayer here is is brutally honest. It's almost brazen. It's, It's, you know, I think if any of us were there with him in the cave or wherever he was, he's offering these prayers and listening to him, I think we would be doing this. Just to slide over, waiting for the lightning bolt to come. Because David did not pull any punches with God. He told him exactly how he felt, and he didn't put on any flowery speech or put on an act, or Jack likes to call it the King James mode, where you go, Oh, our father thou, you know, and all this kind of speech. David doesn't do that here. He's real here. He's genuine. And this is the case for many in Scripture who have felt abandoned, who felt like God has left them, and they're discouraged and despairing. Habakkuk and Habakkuk one cried out, how long, O Lord, will you? Will I call you for help and will you not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Asaph, who was a temple worship leader, said in Psalm 79, we've become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? The author of Psalm 88, Heman, he said this, O oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die for my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer. He went to the Lord and called out for comfort, but he perceived no reply. And it is then when he said, What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so an absent a help in time of trouble? You see, these prayers are from real people looking for real answers, suffering from real problems. And when I say to pray honestly, I'm not talking about irreverent prayer. I'm not saying that we have a license to just vent our anger to impugn God. But let your prayers to him be from the heart. Let your prayers to him be as a despairing child who's seeking answers from a heavenly father. And he will listen. He will listen. No matter how you feel, God hears. Didn't Jesus himself say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let's consider David's questions for a moment. How theologically accurate were these? Does God forget? Does God hide himself? Oh, here he comes again. Does God give us over and forsake us? No. Isaiah 49 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord replies, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Which became literal at the cross, didn't it? Hebrews thirteen five says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So as David was talking here, these weren't theologically correct assessments of his situation. But do we blast him for these questions? Do we rebuke him for his theology? That's what Job's friends did. As he was struggling in great suffering, they berated him for his unrighteousness. Job said in Job 6, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, so he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? Job knew he was speaking words that were vaporous. He knew that they belonged to the wind, but he was struggling. He was despairing. And someone comes to you in a state of despair or they're distraught just remember that their words are spoken from raw emotion they're probably not going to come to you with theologically perfect and correct assessments of what's going on but give them a little bit of room show some kindness as a friend sit with them listen to them pray to them with them excuse me pray with them weep with them read scripture to them there will be time to fix their theology Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Not only does David pray honestly here, but notice too how he prays fervently. Verses 3 and 4, David is very uh, fervent and earnest as he says, Consider, answer me, look at me, God, give me some attention, revive me, strengthen me, don't let me die. Don't let my enemy be victorious over me. These short and direct appeals, they communicate something about David. That there's a fervency, there's an earnestness in his prayer. How much zeal exists in your prayer life? Epaphras was known as a man of prayer. In Colossians 4.12, Paul says of him, Epaphras sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. See, Epaphras, he agonized in his prayers for those he loved. And when was the last time that you agonized in prayer? I thought a lot about my prayer life this week as I was going through this psalm and just remembering how often it it is like a a checklist or a, a series of things I just need to get through rather than a bearing of my soul before God. Sometimes God will bring us Trials. Sometimes he may bring us all the way to the edge of despair so that we'd be driven to our knees to give him honest and fervent prayer to cry out to him to take hold and say, God, I'm not letting go until you give me an answer. Just like Jacob, right? When he wrestled with God said, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And take note of the fact that David, even in the midst of this great despair, this great despondency and discouragement, what does he do? Where does he direct his prayer? Because it's not the activity of prayer that's important here. I'll explain that in a minute. I remember when 9-11 hit. Do you remember seeing all the newscasts and the signs and everything? How much prayer was talked about at that time? I remember seeing several newscasters say, well, they're in our prayers or we need to pray. But it was this vague notion. There wasn't specificity there. There's something we need to remember about that. It's not just praying. We need to clarify something. Praying to Vishnu isn't going to change anything. Praying to Mary or Peter or any other saint is not going to help. Praying to Muhammad or Allah, Reverend Moon, Wall Street, Mother Nature, or God as you understand Him to be, it's not going to help. Nothing will change. Let me say this carefully. Prayer does not change things. God, through prayer, changes things. The one triune God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created everything, who created you, who's sustaining you even now, He's the only one we can go to for prayer. He's the only one that can help us ultimately. So you need to keep crying out. Don't let go. God, I'm not letting go until you answer. And it may be a while. You may have to be holding for a long time. God doesn't promise anything in regards to timing. But what He does do is He promises, you're His children. He's listening. He's waiting for a reason. Don't give up. We need to pray, but pray to the one true God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? It wasn't the fact that the Gentiles weren't praying that was the problem. The fact is that they weren't praying to the one true God. And that prayer to God needs to be fervent, whether you think he's listening or not. Job went through, again, the greatest distresses imaginable. And think about this for a minute, right? He's lost his family. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his health. He's sitting on this this, uh, ash heap, sore and miserable. His friends are there berating him about how unrighteous he must be. And God put you here because you're a wicked man, Job. Just put yourself in that situation. Sitting on that pile, this is what Job says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Brothers and sisters, again, do not give up. Don't let go of God till he answers. In verse 3, David says, Enlighten my eyes lest I die. And this is a picture, this uh, phrase, enlighten my eyes, is, uh, is uh, really He's saying strengthen me, give me life, give me vitality. His eyes were glazing over, he was close to death. 1 Samuel 14 has this phrase when uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, went and gathered some honey after a battle. And it says there in 1 Samuel 14 that his eyes brightened, that his eyes were enlightened. David's saying here, revive me, God, strengthen me or I die. I'm at the end of my rope. I can vividly remember a time in my life. Where I had great, some great trials that were going on all at the same time, and I felt alone. I was alone. I was in despair. My heart was broken. You've been to a point where you just don't think you can take it anymore. And I remember one night in particular just crying out to God. I couldn't do anything. God had to do it. He had to fix my situation. I had nowhere else to go. I had no one else to cry out to. And I remember that night, Just I didn't have a lot to say. <laughs> But just, God, help. God, help me. And then I had to wait. And I had to wait. That's where David is at at the end of verse 4. He's poured out his heart before the Lord. He has talked about his discouragement and his trouble. He's asked God these questions. He feels alone and abandoned. And then after verse 4, we don't get any response from God. We don't see any change in his circumstances. In fact, nothing's changed from the beginning of the psalm to the end of verse 4. But David changes. David in his faith had bared his soul out before the Lord, beseeching for help. And if he had quit talking to God here, if he had stopped there and just said, oh, well, he's not doing anything about it. It would have been an end. That would have been the end of David. But David takes the next step. It's a very important one. He quits letting his feelings do the talking here. He stops trying to come up with his own plans to get him out of trouble. He starts plotting and scheming and dwelling on and thinking about it. He had talked to God and now he was going to let God talk to him. And these last two verses, we see the second response to gain freedom from depression is to preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. David says in verse five, but I have trusted in your loving kindness my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And verse 5 here is, is really key. That first phrase that he gives, it, it's an emphatic statement. That word but in Hebrew, it's really but I, I myself. He draws a hard line. He makes a sharp contrast from what he was saying just before to what he's going to say now. David, it's almost like he catches himself in the moment. He realizes he's been listening constantly to his feelings. He recognizes where that has brought him. And it's almost like he, he grabs himself and takes himself aside and says, David, we need to talk. David, you need to remember some things here. Don't get stuck on how you feel. You need to focus on what's real. Direct your attention to truth. And as David preaches truth to himself in verses 5 to 6, we can see him moving from hopelessness to hopefulness. We see him moving from depression to delight. And as Spurgeon says, from sighing to singing. In reflecting on Psalm 42, Martin Lloyd-Jones has these wise words. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself. You must go on to remind yourself yourself of god who he is and what god has done and what he has pledged himself to do and then in verses five and six here david essentially preaches a simple three-point sermon to himself and it's instructive for us in those times of depression those times of discouragement these three points that he brings up are critical for us to consider and his first point is simply this preach faith in god That first statement that David gives in verse 5 is really key. In fact, it's the hinge on which this entire psalm turns. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. And trust here is the idea of security, confidence to rely upon, to have hope in. Some of you here today may have given up hope. Some of you here may be struggling with discouragement or depression and to keep you from succumbing to your feelings and falling into that hole you have a choice will you trust god or not it's a matter of faith you know during one of martin luther's uh, dark times dark nights of the soul he had spent about three days he was suffering from great discouragement he had poor health and he was depressed and then the third morning his wife came downstairs dressed in uh, morning clothes ready for a funeral so Martin Luther asks her, who's dead? She replied, God. Luther rebuked her, saying, what do you mean God is dead? God cannot die. Well, she replied, the, the way you've been acting, I was sure that he had. He needed that woman. Some, some choose to deal with their despair by seeking comfort in food or alcohol. Some look for escape in entertainment or hobbies. Some look for pleasure and pornography or immorality. Some just isolate themselves. They, they remove themselves from the world, hoping that the pain is going to go away. Others seek relief in prescription meds or drugs or there's a myriad of options here. The list goes on because Satan has, has figured this out. He offers everything for us to escape from that depression, that discouragement. He'll give you many options to turn to, but anything but faith in God. Satan would have you do anything. He'll offer you anything as long as you don't trust God, as long as you don't turn to him. And again, I tell you, you have a choice before you. Will you trust God or not? Will you trust him or not? Spurgeon said, despondency is not a virtue. I I believe it is a vice and I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it. But I'm sure there's no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. And you know that faith is easy when the bills are paid, isn't it? That faith is easy when you're healthy, when your stomach's full, there's no conflict in your life, you have family around you, they're doing well. But strong and lasting faith is forged on the anvil of difficulties. Pure faith is achieved in the furnace of trials. Ed Welch, who wrote a great book on depression called Depression, a Stubborn Darkness. He talks about in his book, in depression, a new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. It is living by faith. In other words, when there's a debate between what your feelings say and what Scripture says, Scripture wins. And again, we're talking about not just the fact of having faith. It's not just that you just got to have faith, man. Again, the key here is the object. The key here is who that faith is going to be in. And David said, God, I have trusted in your loving kindness. It is you that I trust. And that word loving kindness, there is a, that rich Hebrew word chesed, which is so rich in meaning it's difficult to even translate into one word. It carries the idea of loyalty, compassion, grace, kindness, mercy, steadfast love, faithfulness. And it is God's chesed that David hopes in. It is a hope that, that he's had in the past, and it's a hope that he's resolved to continue in the present and into the future. And I wonder, you know, as he made this statement, I wonder what memories he had, what things were flooding into his mind. He's thinking back about the things God had brought into his life, the chesed that he had shown David over the years. When, when you're struggling with despair, preach to yourself, Trust in God by bringing to mind those times of his goodness. Remember those times that he has brought about encouragement to you and shown you mercy. Asaph does this in Psalm 77. He is expressing the same kind of despair that David had. And listen to him as he goes through a similar journey that we've seen in Psalm 13. Asaph says in verse 7, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? Then Asaph said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High is changed. So again, right? Honest, direct prayer, sharing the struggles that were on his heart. But like David, Asaph moves to begin to preach truth to himself. Notice what he says in verse 11. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. Also, that statement, that lastly he gives, he's just reminded himself of things God had done in his life, things that God had done in the lives of his people. And it took him from that discouragement and the despair, those, those despairing questions that he had, and then he starts beginning to say, What is right? Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. Turn to Lamentations 3 for a moment. I want us to see where Jeremiah does this. Jeremiah, if you remember, was the prophet that God had sent to the people of Israel just before their time of captivity for 70 years by Babylon. And God had given him the enviable task of going to tell the people what was going to happen to them and to suffer through their rejection, their lack of concern for God and their hatred of Him. In Lamentations 3, in the middle of his distress, Jeremiah cries out to God. I'll start in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall in my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. I love that passage. Jeremiah, who suffered a great deal of discouragement in his ministry, poured out his heart before the Lord. And then he says this, this is, I'm going to focus on something. I'm going to remember who God is. I'm going to dwell on his loving kindness and his faithfulness in my life. You can kindle that trust in God by recalling to mind what he has done for you, by bringing to mind the great loving kindness he has shown you in your life, the things that he has given you. Many of them we never asked for to get to the path of freedom, freedom from depression. You must preach to yourself, Trust in God. And secondly, you need to preach to yourself joy and salvation. David next says in verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I find it interesting he says that because back in verse 2 he said, there's sorrows in my heart all day. What's in my heart right now is grief. But I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that grief and mourning into joy by rejoicing in my salvation. And he's not doing that through some emotional manipulation, some Jedi mind trick that he's going to play on himself. No, that joy is based on God's salvation. And I think David is not talking here about physical deliverance. I think he's looking ahead to the ultimate deliverance from the pains of this life. Because deliverance hadn't happened yet, and there was no guarantee that it would. I think David is focusing ahead. From a post-cross perspective, we would say, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the full gospel to yourself in those times of despair. Consider the impact of the whole gospel. It isn't just a ticket to heaven, right? Is it? Oh, it's so much more. I mean, ponder this for just a moment. In the gospel, we have forgiveness. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Remember, too, in the gospel we have. Christ's righteousness given to us. God sees us as if we lived the perfect life of Jesus. Romans 5 says, For as through one man, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In the gospel, we have future hope of eternal life. Just last week at Karen Van Teresa's funeral, we talked about 1 Peter 1, and she found such encouragement and hope In those words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his great mercy. Has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance. Which is imperishable. And undefiled. And will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And notice what Peter says here. As he has just talked about the inheritance that we have. He's just talked about that it's been preserved for us. Those of you who place their trust in Christ, you're not going to get to heaven and have God say, oh, we ran out of room. Sorry about that. No, there's a promise that God gives here. He's preserved it. He's holding a place for you, a future inheritance beyond what you can imagine. And notice that that drives Peter to this next statement in verse 6. In this, in that hope, that future hope, being born again, you have Inheritance In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you may be distressed by various trials. So Peter acknowledges we're going to walk through life with difficulty, but preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the eternal hope that you have, even in the midst of suffering. Final rest is coming. This is what Job preached to himself. Job said in Job 19, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. And for him, that was literal. He was watching the skin fall off of his bones, full of sores and boils. And he looked at his body and he said, even though my skin, after it is destroyed, yet from the flesh I shall see God. He's preaching the gospel to himself. In God's gospel, His grace grants us the power to be holy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, help me out with this one. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Can any of you keep going with me? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which He prepared himself so that we should walk in them. You see, the gospel tells us too, it's not just salvation from sin, it's not just a heavenly ticket, it's not just that future hope, but today, now, here in this life, God can give you the grace and provide you the grace to be able to conquer sin, to do good works. It's not just accept Jesus and then hold on, you might make it. No, He has plans for you, not just in heaven. But here, in the gospel, we have a purpose. As our sister mentioned earlier, we have a purpose to live for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controlled us, controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, listen, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Think about that. Jesus has taken... Any of you who have sought his forgiveness, who have repented and turned from your sins, he has taken you from what you used to be and how you used to look and how you used to act. And he is bringing you on a journey. And that journey has a glorious end to look like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. That's part of the gospel. You have purpose. There's a purpose to life. To live for Jesus. Jesus that brings God so much glory when we look like His Son. There's so much more the gospel has to give us joy. And I'll just summarize it. Ephesians 1, 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So when you were down and depressed discouraged preach the full gospel to yourself dwell on that meditate on it. keep saying these things over and over i'm forgiven i have the righteousness of christ i have the hope of eternal heaven i have purpose in life god can give me strength to battle my sin and in doing these things that sorrow that once filled your heart will begin to turn to joy and i must pause here right now to let you know that some of you here today the sermon doesn't apply to you If you're not a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not, by God's grace, turned from your sin, placed your trust in Him, sought His forgiveness, submitted your life to Him, then there's no eternal hope for you. You can't bank on these blessings of the gospel because they don't apply to you. You don't have God as a resource to cry out to. And for you, life on this earth is as good as it's going to get. But it doesn't have to stay that way. If you're discouraged, you're the exact person Jesus wants to help. He said in Matthew 11, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you what? Rest. rest. Right? Jesus looks for those who are despairing to give them hope. And nothing else that you pursue in this life is going to give you that permanent hope and rest. Nothing will. You may get a little bit. That you feel like, oh, okay, I have relief now. Whatever it is you choose to pursue that in, but it's not permanent. And in fact, what you choose to pursue is only going to take you down deeper in the end. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you're going to be saved. Submit to Him as your King. You know, I was talking to a young man yesterday. He suffers from Tourette's syndrome. And he, oftentimes, he's uh, in the parking lot here. And uh, we've at times talked with one another. And uh, he noticed this sign on the uh, out front with the title of the sermon there. And he said, Hey, Tim, I see the sermon. Tomorrow's going to be a deliverance from depression. I said, Yeah. Then he says, Jesus is the key. And I walked away. <laughs> you know what? That brother nailed it. I almost said, you know what? You should just come in and preach tomorrow because, you know, that's exactly the point. He is the key. I think that great hymn says it well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So you need to preach to yourself faith in God and joy in your salvation And the third and last point that David preaches in his self-sermon is to give praise to God. He says that in verse 6. David ends his poem with, I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, singing praise to God not only brings him joy, but it also brings us joy. It can lift our hearts, not only in times of, of joy and gladness, but also in times of difficulty and trial. You know, Luther wrote a hymn, some of you probably heard of it, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. Does that ring a bell? Do you know when he wrote that? It was after a long period of depression that he had suffered because of some poor health. And then it's then that he penned those words. You remember Horatio Spafford, right? The one who wrote it as well with my soul. He wrote those words after his three children had gone down in shipwreck and died. This psalm, Psalm 13 is a song written to the choir director. You see, songs can be a great healing balm to a discouraged soul. And David isn't saying, hey, just, just sing for the sake of singing. You know, just hum yourself a tune. Everything will feel better. No, this is singing with purpose and direction. It is singing that's directed to God and it's about God. He says, I will sing because God has dealt bountifully with me. He's been good to me. Thomas Watson said, a good Christian is not a grave to bury God's mercies but a temple to sing his praises. I like that. You know, this, first, this third principle that David gives us is so practical and helpful. You know, you talk a lot about time. I read Scripture and really, it's really hard for me to find application. David's laying it out there very plainly. Sing to God. Sing praise to Him. When you're discouraged, bring to mind an encouraging hymn. Play a song which focuses attention on God and sing along with it load up your ipod or your cd case or your eight track set or whatever you got whatever electronic gadgetry you have to do this load them up with songs that focus attention on the lord that have god exalting lyrics and then listen to them don't just listen to some sappy emotional song about whatever there needs to be intense focus it on the lord and david's Resolved to do that moves him from, like I said before, sighing to singing. When discouragement comes, apply David's example to your life. Pray to God and preach to yourself. Don't listen to your heart, right? But talk to it. Don't allow the emotions and the feelings to trump what is true. Bring your struggles to God honestly and fervently. Tell Him exactly how you feel and beg Him to make change. Beg Him to listen to listen. Remind yourself to trust God. Dwell on who he is. Dwell on his gospel, the full gospel, so that you may rejoice. Meditate on that. Sing songs that draw your attention to God's character. And as you do these things, you will find freedom. And I I don't mean this morning to give you the impression that, you know, this psalm is like a pill. Feeling down, take one of these and you'll be fine. Just read this psalm and pray and everything will get better. That's not the point here. Overcoming depression is, is more of a process than an event, especially if you've been struggling with it for a while. It may take some time. It will take some effort. You will need to practice these truths over and over. You may have some relapses, but brothers and sisters, don't give up. And David was a man that suffered much. And yet he kept, as you go through the Psalms, and Psalm 13 isn't the only time. (laughs) He lays out some laments, some prayers, some struggles, often in the Psalms, and many do, but he never gave up. He continued to trust God. Dawn will come, and the sun will shine. I opened the message this morning talking about Charles Spurgeon, and as he is more eminently qualified than I am to talk about this subject, I'm going to give him the last word. He said, When I was racked with pain some months ago, to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go from the room and leave me alone. And then I had nothing I could say to God but this, You are my father, and I am your child, and you as a father are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as you make me now suffer, And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you lay still? Will will you still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from your countenance? So I pleaded and so I ventured to say. And when I was quiet and they came back who watched me, I said, I bless God that ease came and the racking pain never returned. The winds of hell hath blown, the world its hate hath shown, yet it is not overthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah, it shall never suffer loss. Lord Jesus, seal this psalm within our hearts. Help us, God, to never lose hope in you. May we always trust you, even in those times, Lord, and where well, we know they're going to come where we're going to feel abandoned, discouraged, We're going to feel that uh, you have forsaken us. And Lord, we know in our minds that that's not true. But God, there are those times where that's how we feel. Help us in those moments, God, to remember David's example, to pray to you fervently and honestly. And Lord, to preach to ourselves these wonderful truths from your word. Lord, help us to be memorizing your word now in the, the good times so that when those struggles come, it will flood back into our minds and your Holy Spirit can bring us the truths that we need to hear. Oh God, we thank you for your promise in Romans 8 that nothing will separate us from your love, that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. God, thank you. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.